Hello, and welcome to Recent Activity, your new favorite entertainment review podcast that attempts to cover every film, every show, all at once. I am your co-host, Andrew Morgan. With me, as always, are the Cain and Abel to my adorable young gargoyle. It's Chris Frodell. Hello. And Shane Beauregard. For all our fans stateside, what's up? Let's do this. <laughs> oh, man. Back to English. What a curveball. Uh. Thank you, Shane. <laughs> or should I say, Dunka Shane? Um, <laughs> I'll bring the uh, the foreign language heat this week. Um, awesome show this week. I, I'm very excited. Uh, we we are focusing on only one property, which is a very rare occurrence, which is always fun. This week will be all about the Sandman, uh, which came out not this past weekend, but the weekend before on Netflix. It has been number one in the in the TV series charts ever since, and is currently number one. I even noticed on the IMDb meter, uh, which uh, is something. Yeah, I've, I've I've very rarely seen that all kind of coalesce together. That's pretty fun. This, is, of course, based on the DC Vertigo comics by the amazing author and comic book writer Neil Gaiman. Now, this is not your typical show. Um, I will just say that right out up front, but I'm a massive Neil Gaiman fan. Uh, do you guys, I, I guess I'll start with Chris cause you kind of knew some of the, the comic book edge yep. cause you're more of the comic book guy. Where do you stand with Neil Gaiman and, or the Sandman series as a property before we got here? It was, I think we talked about this and it's all around the internet, 30 years uh, of Sandman. And back when I was collecting comic books, I chose spandex over heady kind of religious <laughs> stuff. So uh, he was not my my go to. Uh, right. However, being mature now compared to then, yes, it can happen. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate his writing a little bit more. I, in fact, borrowed the first collection of Sandman. Mm -hmm. uh and went through that and i thought it was amazing uh that one i could follow it right. and two yeah. uh the the writing is just so unique yeah and the the fact that it's in comic book form is is just wow chef's kiss yeah it's a very heady like kind of almost philosophical text that was deemed unadaptable by almost everyone who's touched this property, this has a yeah. long history of trying to be created. Um, by the way, I totally buried the lead in the beginning of this because I'm a terrible host. Later on in the show, after we guys, uh, us guys, do our little preamble here about what we think about the Sandman. Afterwards, we will be talking to editor Jamin Bricker, who is a buddy of mine. Uh, we used to work together, and he actually edited multiple episodes on the Sandman for Netflix and I'm curious to see what he has to say about the show and kind of the discussions maybe behind the scenes and some of the approach to making these episodes uh we will do that after this uh but Shane where do you stand were you a, a Neil Gaiman person do you like his other adapted properties or any of that yeah, here's here here's it's what's funny is those who have listened to me in the past knows I'm a massive reader. I love literature. No kidding. I don't read it all. <laughs> but yeah. the last book I read was American Gods. Awesome book. And absolutely loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And through this show, it makes me want to order 
the Sandman collection so I can read it myself. Because I think, yeah. you know, going into the show, and we'll get into it, I had nothing to base it off of. So, which I think can help when you're watching a show because you, you're not comparing it to the book, essentially. Right. But no, that is the last book I actually read. Uh, that was my yearly dedication last year. Was the one book, and I finished it, and it was great. So <laughs> I do like I do like his uh, his writing. Yeah, he's one of my favorite authors. I remember reading American Gods back when I was in uh, high school, early high school age, and obviously you're now seeing a, a bunch of different adaptations of Neil Gaiman come through these days with American Gods and Good Omens being adapted before we got Sandman here. Um, and I've also read a lot of his comic stuff that he's just kind of floated through. I remember, like, for instance, the there was an X-Men uh, comic that was set in, like, British colonial or, like, pre-colonial times or something like that. It was It was an interesting... Uh, period piece version of the X-Men that I actually really liked a lot and that was a, a Neil Gaiman one from a while ago but people would also know things like Stardust that was adapted uh, as a film or Coraline of course being Neil Gaiman as well so even if you're not familiar with the name a lot of people would be familiar with Neil Gaiman's work that has been adapted thus far this is a very unique plot uh, that I think if you told the average person, like, hey, man, you should watch this show. Cool. What's it about? Oh, it's about the personification of dreams, who is one of the seven endless. Oh, really? Um, yeah. You would kind of just people would glaze over and maybe not jump on this. It's a very hard show to market, but I, we will do our best. Uh, right now, because as I said, the plot is basically m about Morpheus, the personification of dreams and one of the seven endless, who is captured in an occult ritual in 1916 after being held a held captive for 106 years. Dream escapes and sets out to restore order to his realm, the dreaming. Like I said, this has been a long time coming. They've been trying to develop this for a while. Uh, the last real effort to do this was a film adaptation with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and David S. Goyer, who is actually one of the people who helped bring this show to life. Uh, but JGL left in 2016, citing creative differences on that after the comic ran from 1989 to 1996. So basically they started adapting this almost immediately after that run was over, like around 99 people started trying to do it. But now that the show is here, and it is definitely something that is, it's working for the people who I know who have watched it. And I, I really would like to know what you guys think as maybe not the more traditional viewers, as you guys were saying, like maybe not uh, more steeped in either this particular property or game in to begin with. Shane, I'll start with you. What did you think of the show overall uh, after catching all these 10 really dense episodes? I really, really enjoyed it. I loved it. And I'm glad you brought up Jordan Ghost, uh, Gordon Levitt. I'm glad he didn't get the role because Tom Sturridge, who I've never seen before, Incredible. was was great. Like his yeah. voice, just like I was drawn to his voice. It's so unusual. Yeah. I love the pacing of the show, which I read a lot of people had issues with because there's not a lot of action in this series at all. It is a very slow burn. Yeah. And there are a lot of episodes, like the diner episode, where I was like, okay, where where is this going? There's a lot of exploratory episodes, but the writing was so good. 
I love Tom Sturridge. I'm a big Boyd Holbrook fan. I wish there was a little more of him. And again, that's me not knowing the source material. I wanted more screen time with that character, the Corinthian. I love Gwendolyn uh, Christie uh, from Game of Thrones as Lucifer Morningstar. She was a bright spot, and I'm looking forward to her more in season two. Because, man, that was my favorite episode was episode three when he has to go to hell to ask her for help. I, right. I, I just loved everything about the show. I was just I, – I kept eating the episodes. I think I was done with the show like in two days, two and a half days pretty much. I, I loved it. Yeah, which is interesting because this show of of all the ones, especially for being a Netflix property and being a binge model, dropping it all at the same time, this show is not exactly set up to binge. It's very much almost like an anthology anthology style um, where not all 10 episodes are exactly connected. Like Morpheus is kind of this through line, but it doesn't exactly start as one story and then end up on the other side with the same set of characters you're you're going some characters come and go within one episode let alone uh multiple episode arcs or the whole series so i i found that to be very interesting chris where did you land with sandman i really enjoyed it uh yeah i i think you hit the nail on the head when you say it's not bingeable but i don't say that negatively no, I no, don't. No, 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 I no. thought. And, and, I thought like, wow, this is so dense and philosophical that it just held me, and I was like, I can sit with that and enjoy it, and I actually applaud them for that effort. Yeah, and uh, you guys know me. I'm uh, I'm into uh, a lot of uh, dialogue, and this gave it a plenty. But it wasn't just dialogue. It wasn't just one location. Uh, it was expansive. It was yeah. uh, beautiful to look at. It was surprising as a Netflix property because going into this, I had some preconceived notions that it was going to be like cinematic in certain parts and then it was going to look like it was on a soundstage uh, and others. Right. And it's some sometimes that's uh, kind of like disjointed and I don't know uh, if you can really like avoid it. You know, you, you can't sure. really be... Um, into the episode and then something something like that is jarring enough to be like I can't get back into this. I now I'm now I'm concentrating on the background when I should be looking at the foreground. Um right. but all that was put to rest. Honestly, it was um it was well-rounded. It was it was more than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's a, it's incredible casting that as Shane brought up, I thought it was an incredibly deep bench between uh we already brought up Tom Sturge as Morpheus and and Boyd Holbrook as the Corinthian, but people like David Thewlis as John D, I thought was outstanding. Um a lot of people are still uh talking about that uh the 24/7 aka the diner episode mm-hmm. uh for the fact that um you know, that is basically almost like a mini movie unto itself. And I think he makes it that way. David Thulis's performance, he really holds it uh, with, you know, just having that control that he can have with the Ruby and kind of like con- controlling a whole room of people and really bringing out this mayhem with just stripping away the veneer of lies and everything else, that whole uh, storyline between having him kind of be a, a, a villain here and Constantine still roaming around, like kind of weaving in different ways to be villainous, 
I guess, or, or or be the big bad in this series was quite interesting. But there's whole episodes where they don't even really get into kind of the evils of men or characters from the dreaming or any of that. And basically just, you know, do contemplations on death and uh, human relationships. And like that whole episode where uh, the guy who lives for like, eons 500 years 500 years or yeah Yeah, whatever it is uh that that i thought was intriguing and and to show kind of the development over time and what matters to a person when they live longer and why they would want to live longer even when life is giving them you know a a bad side right Yeah. yeah crap hand versus like giving them all the riches in the world and you see both sides and and what those conversations look like i thought that's some of the best stuff in here and it has nothing to do really with the overarching plot unless you consider kind of morpheus and his relationship to mortals as a person where he's kind of after being entrapped he has a lot of rage because he wants to kind of get his things back that were stolen from him and obviously he lost a considerable amount of time and and his you know the dreaming has fallen apart his realm has fallen apart so there's a lot of anger and resentment towards mortals even though he kind of has to learn that he is at service to mortals and it kind of goes back and honestly i'm now jazzed up that i've gone through a series like this which is like fantasy you know cinematic filmmaking to the nth degree and now we're gonna dive right back in soon enough with house of the dragon and lord of the rings and all these other ones that this is kind of a nice first serving (laughs) to to get into uh before we start getting into other mystical realms the the scores for this has been quite impressive uh an 87 rotten tomato score with an 80 rotten tomato audience score uh, the 7.8 on IMDb, and like I said, it's the number one on the IMD meter right now, uh, which I'm not seeing thus far. If I, I if I was to, I, such a hard show to grade, but if I was to do so, I feel like it's right up there with all the other ones we've kind of been batting around. Um, it's just so hard when you just when you think about this show, you can't think about that carryover narrative or any of that stuff. It's just more moments with mm. this type of show yeah. and certain characters. Um, heck, even the use of the Ravens in this show is so impressive in the yeah. way it humanizes like a trap dream early on and then uses them uh, as a sounding port, yeah, sounding board for him later. Um, Chris, do you have, if you had to put like kind of like a, a at a five star thing, or if you want to try to rank it with some of these better ones, better shows that yeah. we've been talking about all year, where does it land for you? I got to say, it, it ranks pretty high. I would, I would say, like, you know, it has its faults. It's not perfect, but uh, I would give it a four out of five. Uh, yeah. Just on uh, the death episode, I think that was episode six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just that alone. Well, I thought that was a beautiful episode. I yeah, mean, I think it's, everybody uh, has their own favorite episode, which is kind yeah. of the fun part of this too. Yeah, it was uh, it was beautifully done. It uh, I remember reading, maybe skimming through that particular issue or that section of exactly just dream and uh, death walking together, right? And you know, meeting certain people along the way. And I thought it was translated so well that the whole episode was just 
I say this a lot, but engaging. It really was like there's no second screening. There's no, you know, uh, I'll have this on in the background. No, you are engaged. You're watching the whole episode and saying this is some of the most beautiful writing put to to a TV. Yeah. Um, which which is why when yeah. you're talking about such an like uh, an, an ethereal kind of like the the fantasy aspect can seem like a bit much especially if mm-hmm. uh, if you're just how you're trying to explain it to someone but honestly yeah. it just doesn't really matter i mean it matters and they do it well enough but you know what i mean like it just the the conversations and the the mirror holding up to humanity stuff is really what sells this show and that's why yeah. to me i'm way more encouraged by it and i can watch it i can, with this style i can watch this show endlessly I, I I can just continue on and you don't care. Like the, the show kind of, you know, ends on sort of a, an interrogation or a cliffhanger or trying to make some bigger thing to set up for season two. But honestly, yeah. I didn't even need that to be quite honest. No. But I think a lot of the, the quote Netflix of it all, or this type of model of trying to like get it to go forward. I thought they felt they maybe needed to. But I, I didn't even need it. Shane, where would you go with a, kind of a rating on this one? Yeah, this one's tough. Like, uh, I'm, I'm going to kind of piggyback off of what Chris said, because episode six was my second favorite episode. It actually, like, it got me really emotional watching that episode for some Absolutely. reason, especially with the Jewish guy yeah. with the music, and he wanted to, you know, that whole scene just really, really got to me. Yeah. Um, outside of episode three with uh, Lucifer's uh, introduction. And I do like the setup for the second season, just because I'm a big Gwendolyn Christie fan. I want to see more of that story angle when season two comes along. So ah, this is one of my favorite shows of the year. But if I have to like crack at the top five, it might get there if I really think about it a lot. Um, but I'd give it a. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to give it a four point two five out of five. I might because it's right there between a four and a four and a half with me. Yeah. This show hit me. Yeah. In, in a good way, a lot. Like, the writing was so strong. You could tell Netflix with the production value of the show was really high. And I'm going to just spit out the only negative for me on this show. Okay. <gasps> yeah. Patton Oswalt's voice as the Raven threw me off this show. Like, it didn't fit to me with the construct of the show. For some reason, he took – every time he spoke, it kind of took me out of it. Which yeah. I know it's weird for me to say. I just didn't like his voice in this particular role. I would have been okay with just like a regular plain Jane, John Doe, G.I. Jane voice in that Raven as opposed to Patton Oswalt. It just didn't fit for me. That's the only negative I have on this show. But it's I'm gonna this show's gonna make me sit there and think at the end of the year where I'm gonna put it. But right now it's like number six, like itching inching into the top five for me. Yeah, I keep thinking of which one side I put ahead. I mean, because we've been talking about, you know, Stranger Things and the boys and Barry is kind of being there and then the bear, you know, so that's kind of like a four ish there and is Sandman right there or, you know, it, it, is Shane telling me he liked the terminal terminalist way too much? <laughs> no, if I had to take a show out to put in, I might take out Peacemaker to put this one in there. Okay. That's the one. That's the one I might swap out. Yeah. It's, it's right there for me. Yeah, it's it's and, and you couldn't talk about two different shows <laughs> and then Peacemaker and that. It's very hard to kind of based on comics. Yeah, yeah. 
That they are. Yeah, if you want to yeah. <laughs> go down there. They are? Although I love how this show, even though it's kind of a co-pro with Warner Brothers and, and DC to an extent or whatever, it's still, it kind of divorces itself because it's the Netflix thing and they can't go into the expanded universe. So I know they took out certain elements that could connect it to other properties in the DC universe, um, but then, you know, really pulled it out and even going so far as to obviously chain John Constantine um, as we know it uh, in many other forms and changing it to um, uh, Joanna Constantine. They said it every time. It's like, ah, you're making me, you're making me really struggle to keep hearing that. I think they said it so many times just so that I knew that it wasn't how it's supposed to be pronounced, I guess. We're American. We say Constantine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Although it's a very British English, production, yeah, go away. Yeah. Um, speaking of that, though, uh, that it, I did notice that it was Warner Brothers that popped up. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they have this uh, on HBO or, or uh, distributed through them? Because they did, they no they notes on that. They didn't want to spend the money, and from what I understand, in so many iterations of either the film adaptation or the TV one, there's been such. As as they put it in like kind of the Wikipedia entries or other things I've heard, there was such hmm. you know turmoil going on between who owned who and wh- who was gonna do gotcha. what with what that it just turned into we'll we'll sell it off you know to kind of make it work somewhere and get something out of this property because God if I was if I was trying to force something to happen for fifteen twenty years and it just didn't work I mean I guess maybe they just lost faith and there's only been so many people over at warner brothers um or in that vein that really champion this as a story and i think probably once jgl left the other one and goyer was already making uh some headway with this adaptation that i think they just went forget it yeah (laughs) go ahead and and go try it with somebody else who can actually uh buy it up and and produce it well enough and Kudos to Netflix because they let yeah. them do basically whatever they wanted. I mean, you know, obviously certain limitations are going to be on the on the the effects level or any of those things. And I don't fault any of that. But I still think the production design and kind of the dreamlike cinematography and a lot of the ways that they moved around with things, uh, playing with the aspect ratios and things that people thought were a glitch uh, in their in their <laughs> episodes, I heard. Um even reaching out to Netflix to complain, which I think is hilarious. Um, <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, the, but I thought what they did with it uh, was outstanding, and I feel like I'm—I don't know—I'm—I'm I'm probably in a four and a half with this show. But it kind of—it's been a year of many four and a half, so we are kind of talking <laughs> about like the upper crust of the year. When I think of this show, I think it's—it's it's there. Because the highs are so, so high. And I don't think the lows are that low. I actually uh, disagree with you, Shane. I thought actually Gwendolyn Christie was actually my least favorite thing of this. Um, I I can't push back on the Patton Oswalt thing. It took me a while to kind of get there. Ironically, for Mark Hamill being in the voice cast and him (coughs) not being that Raven, I was like, "Mm, interesting. But in a way, I wonder if they kind of positioned the Patton Oswalt thing being like he's just the massive nerd online friend that you want to like drum everything through i wouldn't be shocked in the least 
to kind of make him kind of this cornerstone. He was actually the first person cast, if you can imagine. Um, really? So wow. it's not even like they came back to it. He was the first person they called. So um, it's very interesting that that happened. But my only thing with Gwendolyn Christie, I didn't think she was bad. I just felt it was she didn't have this kind of presence for someone who's the, you know, the Lord over the demons of hell. You know, she didn't have that presence for me. I feel like she has kind of a baby face for how big she is and, and as a, as a presence. Um, so I don't know if they wanted to like kind of play with that a little bit being like kind of this fallen angel kind of having some softness, but with a hard edge now that, you know, it's the overlord of hell, but I I don't know what their Hmm. thought process was (laughs) with that, but I didn't, by her as much so i hope you still love me after that shame but like uh, I, I, not I still... so much now not so much now <laughs> i but i did i i i enjoyed almost every other casting and and like, like i said i thought yeah god wherever they pulled tom sturge out i hadn't seen him in anything and he was incredible um he just has this temperament that i think is so pitch perfect um yeah, and then like we mentioned, everybody else: Boyd yeah. Holbrook, David Thewlis, um, Vivian Achampong as Lucine. I thought she was very good too, and kind of playing that back and forth of being subservient, but also trying to cement her role and trying to prove a point when needed. And kind of the way that went, I thought that was incredible. Um, and yeah, Kirby Howell Baptiste as Death. I I hate anyone who's making this a conversation. Yeah with the recasting quote unquote of any of this. I hate it. I I think it's so dumb. And when you watch the episodes, you should feel silly. If you even tried to think this wasn't a good idea. Cause she is again, if you talk about how well Tom Sturridge is in terms of his presence and how much it fits character, she fits it so well too. And she has such patience, such grace and like a, 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 uh, welcoming demeanor that it fits everything about death at this point in the arc of the character of death. And I, I just, I, I don't understand online oh, yeah. discourse and I'm so glad I love watching Neil Gaiman actually fight these trolls <laughs> online and kind of setting them straight um, between that and having a trans character. They've been fighting uphill with a bunch of like meatheads online that just don't get this as a product. Um, but I, I, I loved almost every casting choice in this thing and I look forward to more. No, this whole cast, they played well off each other. Like, even if you don't like Gwendolyn Christie as Lucifer, I thought the scene with her and Tom Sturridge was just phenomenal. That game that they played against each other. The D and D campaign. Yeah. I was into that. Yeah, exactly what it was, Chris. That's a very good way to put it. It was great, and like I said, the actress who played Death, I thought the interaction between her and Tom Sturridge, it, it just like was natural chemistry with all the actors and actresses on this on this show. I, uh, I got, I'm just gushing about this show. Like it was great. It was great in every aspect. I was gonna say a couple of things. Uh, I love the uh, the scenery of um, Hell, mm-hmm. where you're you know walking through, and you're like. What is that in the background? Then, like, this body emerges from from the walls. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, yeah. oh, okay, yeah. all right. I thought that was really cool. Like, you know, to incorporate, you know, the surroundings, like the trees being people, and all this stuff. I was just like, wow, this is just like 
amazing. And yeah, those uh, I, those main sets were were incredible between hell and the the basement uh, area where Dream was captive for so long. Yeah, I thought yeah. they did an excellent job with that too, in terms of lighting and how it was constructed. I, I was very impressed. And uh, I do like the fact that uh, everyone has this idea of uh, who death is, and everyone wants death, but they keep on getting dream or they're you know looking <laughs> elsewhere yeah and it's like oh it's you it's but when you find death when she's when she emerges finally she has the essence of death how she is portrayed in the comic regardless of uh how we see her yeah the attitude is still the same that you know she's bubbly she's Yes, it's a terrible job, but she finds the joy in it. Yeah. You know, uh, they're not alone and neither am I. We're holding each other's hand towards the end. I'm just like, that's gorgeous. I shed a tear to that. I mean, it's just beautiful. And, you know, you think at this point we'd be used to uh, online vitriol of, (laughs) of, you know, you cast a black girl as it's like calm down you know what the best person is in that role and i I stand behind it i i I think even uh i i wasn't too keen on uh changing the gender of john constantine right john constantine (laughs) um but i thought she did a fabulous job yeah i like jenna coleman from doctor who time and everything else yeah so like it, it was it was all well done to me. I I, I don't know where the complaints are, unless and you the have dumbest a part, Chris, is that a lot of these people are playing personification of things. That like yes. if you read the comics, yeah. sometimes death is a cat. Sometimes you know like death changes yeah. all throughout the original property. So to complain is just so dumb and short sighted, especially when you're giving yeah. such a beautiful rich text to chew on with all these episodes i think it's just awful um but i I do look forward you guys looking forward to season two with how they kind of ended it shane you can go oh oh, (laughs) no absolutely like i said i love the cliffhanger they left us on because i want to see more gwendolyn christie in her confrontation with tom sturgis so i'm so looking forward to that storyline like this this the ending has me so geeked up I am so mad I have to wait. What do we got to wait? Probably like a year and a half, two years before the second season comes out. It, it hasn't um, even been greenlit, so we we don't even know. But um, from an interview I did uh, listen to today from one of the showrunners, uh, Alan Heinberg, uh, he actually says all the scripts are ready to go. They just need to be greenlit to go for well, it. Well, let's go, Netflix. Let's greenlit just greenlit this shit or greenlight this shit because your money for good. Yeah. You greenlit (laughs) shittier properties than the Sandman for multiple seasons. Let's go. You got something hot right now. This is probably the best show they've dropped since stranger things. Oh, I'm going on record. Yeah. I'm going on record for that. So let's go. I'm I'm all ready. Yeah. I'm all ready for season two. Yeah. Chris, what do you think? Yeah. uh, If uh, season two happens, great. I wonder where they're going to go. You know, yeah. there, there's a lot to, to really pick from to, to go, but I, I have no idea. I had no idea with this season, but if they didn't come out with a second season, 
I'm satisfied with what they gave us. I'd be a little disappointed because I think that'd be an opportunity for Netflix or this show to introduce the rest of his family because we only got introduced to one in his seven. So I want to see uh, Destiny. Uh, that's not true. I mean, you despair got and, despair uh, and desire were kind of working together, desire. and you get that kind of uh, overlap. Right. And then death, obviously, is the third. So, but I, I want to see more of that family dynamic with the I seven do endless. So that's also what I'm looking forward to uh, with this show. Hopefully, getting a season two. Yeah, the you, the rest of kind of this mirror holding up to humanity stuff and all the philosophical conversations, I can listen to that all day. It's weird. It kind of almost feels um, Trekian, where like there there could be some larger thing that can happen at the end of a season, but I can just watch individual episodes where they just encounter one right. person to the next oh, yeah. and kind of learn lessons and still be riveted. If they did it that way, but I will say I am really looking forward to a season two. I hope that it happens. I think this show is in the perfect hands with David S. Goyer, Gaiman, and Alan Heinberg at the wheel. And after we take this quick break, I will be riveted again to hear more about this show from the editor of the show, Jamin Bricker, uh, my longtime buddy. So stay tuned with us and we'll be right back. Attention, Nerdy Knights. Join Flo, Anders, and me, Colleen, at the Well-Rounded Table for Bohemian Geek Studies, where we take extremely dorky dives into our favorite fandoms. From that Star Wars galaxy far, far away to Outlander Scottish Highlands, we consume it all. Listen along with us each week as we explore the stories that mean so much to us. Bohemian Geek Studies is available wherever you get your podcasts and is proudly part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. All right, I'm very happy to bring in uh, a person I've worked with a long time ago who's now way above my level, so I'm glad that he's here taking the time with me. Jamin Bricker, uh, who was the editor on multiple episodes of The Sandman for Netflix, which is what we're talking about today. And first of all, congratulations on all the success uh, with the show, and it's just an impressive feat that I'm glad you got to be a part of, man. This is incredible. Thank you. I mean, it was it 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 was an honor to work on the show. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blow any smoke there. It was the one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. Yeah, and and you're no uh, rookie when it comes to high profile shows on Netflix. Working on Firefly Lane, uh, and and I believe as we were kind of talking about fair a continuing gig for you with that. So that's an awesome gig as well. Um, but what did this show, I guess, mean to you? personally that you know you get to work on something that you know uh it's a legendary ip for a lot of people not everyone but i'm a huge neil gaiman person I've, I've read his stuff you know all the way through and a lot of his adaptations have worked for me but maybe it, there some of them are tougher than others uh so what did this one mean to you well uh like i was telling you i was always you know, I was a big Neil Gaiman fan, but like more in the novel world that he, where he is. Right. And, uh, you know, so Alan Heinberg, the showrunner, I had worked on one of his previous shows called The Catch and Alan mm -hmm. wrote the Wonder Woman reboot, you know, that yep. came out in 2015 or something like that. And uh, when 
the opportunity when I, you know, basically I saw it like everyone else, like the deadline article essentially came out that Alan was going to be show running this Neil Gaiman show for DC. You know, I, I had already finished my time with him on a, on a show and we had a great, great relationship. And I just, you know, one thing that I always want to do with people I love to work with is work with them again. Of course. And so, you know, the opportunity to a work on a Neil Gaiman project, work with Alan Heinberg again was just, I mean, honestly, that's kind of number one uh, because he's, you know, such a great showrunner, so much fun to be around. You know, I consider him a friend and, uh, and, and, you know, he's just, we, we link up a lot in the way we like to tell stories, you know, uh, you know, what are you, what's he watching? What am I watching? And, And we have a lot of the, the same opinions and, um, yeah, so that's, it was like, a that's what was so, so amazing for me to like be able to a work on a Neil Gaiman piece and work with, uh, Alan Heinberg, uh, who I just generally adore. And, uh, and it also stepped up my career like to a level. Cause I, I, you know, traditionally I do, you know, I worked on Nashville scandal, the catch, uh, firefly lane. I traditionally do kind of, you know, one hour dramas, soapy dramas right. and to, to get the opportunity to do a show that is basically, you know, 40 minute movies, 50 minute movies of the highest caliber that is literally physically possible right now. That was, it, 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 it opened my world. It was a learning experience. It was exciting every yeah. day, getting the dailies, working with these like amazing directors who, you know, they don't shoot a ton of footage, you know? Yeah. Um, but you just get really, really good stuff. Um, you could basically close your eyes and, and the, you know, and just cut a great show. Yeah, and I echo your sentiment about Alan Heinberg. Like, he's kind of the perfect person. I'm glad that this all worked out between, obviously, his relationship with David S. Goyer, who was a big name that made kind of all this happen with Neil Gaiman. And he's kind of coming over from doing a lot of stuff in the uh, Shondaverse, which is kind of like a major part of Netflix, you know, so it's got that kind of familiarity. But he's also... A person who was a comic book writer who who gets the property who loved Neil Gaiman so I was very excited when I heard that he was taking on this project um, so my my curiosity with this show especially is what are you getting like you were saying about like dailies and everything else like what is the conversation to you beforehand about kind of putting this show together and like what are you getting like as far as the raw to like kind of assemble this, like it, it's obviously a lot of visual effects work. It's a lot of, you know, maybe certain practical stuff, but I don't know exactly what you're getting to try to construct such a, an abstract show like yeah. this um, that has to mess with you. I mean, even just the fact that they did a lot of uh, work with the, the varying aspect ratios to make it feel dreamlike in different ways, uh, to kind of keep people on on their edge about the look of the show, how did that all come together? Well, uh, the aspect ratio I, I can't really t- touch on. That was kind of done at the creative DP, you know, pilot director and uh, one the producing director, this guy Jamie Childs. Mm-hmm. Like they they really conceived that. I, you know, basically, I just got footage and. And so the way it works for me um, from, from the kind of footage that I get and like how we would conceive 
um, the sequences. So I cut episode three, which is the Constantine episode, Joanna Constantine. Mm-hmm. And I cut up, I, I cut episode nine, which is the serial convention, the serial killer convention yeah. uh, with the Corinthians. So those are those. And then I, I, I'm also an additional editor on the pilot, but they brought me back later to do that. Um, uh, but like, okay. So episode three, um, there's a big sequence where um, a demon the mm-hmm. the prince the the princess is getting married to a possessed demon a possessed football player and the demon rips uh out of the skin and and grows yeah. and and tears the skin apart and uh and then and then Constantine you know puts a puts a um uh do, you know does a freaking exorcism to yeah. send him back to hell right and so like that sequence was that's the first sequence i've ever done like that obviously <laughs> there was nothing like that in firefly land and uh <laughs> maybe next season you don't know <laughs> <laughs> and uh and so they did uh do what's called uh previs so mm-hmm. you know someone basically just does rough animations of kind of what these things are going to look like and then a visual effects editor puts that together and puts music and sound effects and stuff in it. And and it's a reasonable roadmap, you know, for sure. But, you know, like anything else, like any other filming, any other, you know, film production, things happen, stuff needs to change. Costume didn't, you know, like specifically his costume was very limiting on how much movement he had. Right. But um, so like, I don't know if you notice, he's kind of stationary. Yeah. In that, in that sequence. Uh, in the previs, he's like on the attack. Okay. And so like, so, you know, that sequence we spent a lot of time building and, and, you know, I'm like watching it and, and then looking back at the previs and we were all trying to kind of like, why isn't this working? Right. You know, it's not as, it's not as impactful as what the previs was kind of showing us. And that, that it kind of clicked, like, you know, he's not on the attack. He's just stationary. And so we constantly, um, this guy, Ian, uh, who was the visual effects supervisor, we would, we would have these like weekly meetings where we would basically blue sky sequences like that. And that was like kind of the most freeing thing in the world because, you know, they, they, they spent, you know, buckets of money to get that location. Um, yeah. it's, you know, and it's not the kind of place that we could go to, but like go back <laughs> to, but like how, how, what can we do? any there's no bad ideas right like what would you want to see and how do we see it and that's what was really amazing about uh working on working on this show is like i was the voice the you know in a lot of that stuff and it's you know it becomes a discussion and like you know i have my cut of the way i think it's kind of working but like what would i like to see you know i watch a lot of movies i want to see you know freaking like the walls like start to turn on fire yeah. and like the por- the portal like if he's getting in a portal going to hell i want to i want to see that and sure. feel that and you know and then like if i don't know if you noticed but like his bones like are cr- like clicking back into place so that yeah. was like something something that we came up with kind of later in the game um because you know that was just a, a dude in a costume and so that's all done visual effects and that wasn't intentional you know out of the gate so right uh that was pretty amazing to kind of see that process and be a part of that process. For sure. Is there a lot of conversation yeah. about tone then? I guess about like you were saying, like what not only what you want to see or what uh, maybe people want to see in there, but like what they're trying to convey with the show or certain episodes. Well, yeah. So again, you know, it's so, it's so moment to moment, you know, of course. So 
when we start a show before before they start you know like the director and the team the teams are all in pre-production and then it's like that director's you know a couple of days before that director starts shooting the episode they do what's called a tone meeting right and so uh, that's where we'll just kind of like go through scene by scene where it'll be like the showrunner, a couple of the producers, director and the editor. And we'll, the, the showrunner is just like really hammering what he's looking for scene from scene. What's the overall theme of the episode? What's the arc that each of these characters needs to hit? Right. Um, and you know, it's a discussion too, but you know, in general, like you get a really good tone of what, of what's happening. But like, but like, so that scene again, for example, another thing that we were kind of missing and Alan and I kind of really beat that, beat that scene up is for whatever reason, uh, it just felt like dream also was not like in the middle of it. Right. And that's the thing he, it needed to feel like he was stopping Constantine from sending him. The most important thing for him was to stop Constantine from sending the demon back to hell so that he can get the information to get his helm. Exactly. Like that's, that's the most important information for him. And so, you know, it, it's a little crazy, you know, you get all excited with these blue sky conversations of like, we're going to, we're going to add this and we're going to just like, we're going to make it look amazing. It's but at the end of the day, we need the like that's story comes first. The sure. character needs this, so has to try and stop that. You know, like that's that we constantly, you know, not constantly, but like whenever we would get to start going down, it's like steamrolling down these paths. We'd have to like kind of stop and say, is is this true to like what the tone of these characters are supposed to be doing? And uh, that, if I'm not mistaken, that was kind of the first big episode for Matthew the Raven, too, as well. Kind of that was the well. that was the in, that was the introduction of, Ra- of Matthew. Right. So, how hard is it to kind of make the Raven stuff work? Like, especially, gosh, the just the amount of angles or the amount of shooting to try to get that proper. Is that how was how was that done? Was that puppetry stuff? Was that like how how do they control that situation? So that that was a real raven most of the time so it's a um, trained animal yeah honestly it is one of the best actors on set <laughs> um, <laughs> no like so uh so matthew uh when he's like by the fountain right so he's by the fountain and he's like i'm and it's Patton oswald's voice is the raven and so you know they had a guy on set kind of speaking but uh we ended up you know getting rid of that and i ended up looping all that and kind of you know, tone like because again, I'm I'm there. We're working on the material. Alan and I are constant. You know, day in and day out to working on the material. Change the inflection of that. Da da da. And I'm not Patton Oswald. I'm not going to. But you know, we just worked on it to kind of get right. the, the the timing, the space of it, the what's what's up, what's down of it, and uh, but you know, like the Ravens. Like I I, I used to live here. Like <laughs> that. He did that. The Raven did that, and then wow. VFX VFX went in. They remapped the bird, so right. it's like still, you know. I think they just basically put something over the bird, and then they and then they add the mouth moving and stuff like that. That's interesting. But then there's also times where they, you know, there's wholesale shots where they did digitally create the bird. But in that episode, I can't speak to every episode, but in that episode, I want to say eighty five percent of the birds is real is real bird with wow. you know. Uh, with the augmentation afterward, the, the career, it's crazy. The career for that bird is going sky high, man. It's amazing. Uh, pun, pun intended, I guess. Uh, wasn't I guess? Um, <laughs> but that—that's incredible. And, and, 
just this show is so impressive just as a, a viewer. And the reason why I ask a lot about tone and thing, because this is such an abstract show in the fact that it almost works as an anthology more than it does like a cohesive season. Like the only real through line is Morpheus and right. kind of the people who work for him essentially. And even then you don't even get them episode to episode. Um, yeah. So it's interesting when you get brought, especially in your game where you're doing specific episodes, you're not doing every episode. So kind of the, the carryover thoughts of, you know, trying to be cohesive in terms of, you know, characters coming in and out or introducing new things, but trying to keep the same kind of beats or tones of the show. That seems to be the hardest thing, especially in a show like this. Yeah. I would say, uh, you know, all of the directors were, were really talented, but Jamie Childs, who was the producing director, I, I, I got to give him a lot of credit. I think he, he did a really nice job because I cut – because he directed like five of the episodes right. because of COVID, scheduling things. He was there. You know, they – and I mean, and he's really talented. I, I mean, I, I, it's – it was – so I think he helped with that quite a bit. And then obviously uh, Alan just kind of – he's he's – he doesn't sleep. It's insane. It's <laughs> like, um, he'll, so like they're in London, we're editing in Los Angeles. That's an eight hour time difference. Right. They would, they would shoot all day. He goes to every rehearsal, you know? So like he's there, he's very hands-on when it comes to the blocking and I don't want it to feel like this and all that stuff. Right. He would do that all day and then he would get, you know, get home, let's say at 8 PM and then that would be 12 o'clock our time. And then he would work to midnight his time. So he, he would work eight to 12. I'd be done at four, leave us with notes. And then, you know, that's, it was just insane. He's such a, I don't know how he does it. (laughs) I don't know, but obviously he's prolific at this point. I mean, for how many projects he's done and everything else, that guy is amazing. And that's why I want this show to live on because I mean, you got the right people in place and it just, I think it can only grow from here. Um, you said you obviously did the the serial killer convention as well. That seemed to be kind of the most winky and fun, yet also nightmarish part of the episode. It was a it was a interesting dynamic, and I love Stephen Fry, so that was a great addition as well. Is there anything you remember from from that one in terms of the conversations you were having with Alan, or or maybe particularly difficult stuff on that one? Uh, yeah, I mean, so. As so, I burned through the comic uh, pretty fast, like before the show started. And um, you know, there's in in the first like series of collections, the first like twenty magazines or whatever. It's like there was really three ep- There was three things that I really loved in the first set. Constantine, mm-hmm. um, the diner, right, was obviously just like absolutely mind blowingly. Yeah, my good. favorite episode. Oh, so good. And I, and I like I, I'm not gonna pretend that I didn't want that episode because I really did. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. And then uh and then the serial killer. I love the Corinthian, that whole serial convention. And so when I got that, when that was it, like, you know, you're gonna do nine and then you I you know, I don't know. They're just like, here's the episodes that you're gonna get. And you know, the scripts they keep them very buttoned up and tight and stuff like that. Of course. Like I don't even I don't even get access to them until, you know, a couple of days before you know, like a week before they start shooting them, essentially, then then I get and it's just like 
I, I mean, I knew I had a good idea of which, what it was going to be just because Alan told me, but like to read that was just, I was giddy as a schoolgirl, man. I, I was just so happy, so excited to get that one. Yeah. Are um, you, but, you don't seem to be accustomed to uh, doing a lot of violent stuff beforehand. Was that any, any harder in terms of, you know, trying to, to set those things up to construction, the blocking obviously is a lot of the work I would have hoped or assume that it makes your job easier. Uh, is there any kind of like tips of the trade of how those were executed? Yeah. I mean, you know, basically I would do the really violent version. I would do drafts of all that stuff where it's like, here's the, you know, we're really getting in there. We're really seeing, yeah. you know, him jacking these guys up and, and, uh, and you know the murder you know when they kill the 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 fake yeah. the news report you know the report the magazine reporter at the end like that was i have a cut of that that was way more violent and um cool send that over <laughs> yeah. and, and you know you and then and then as the show kind of grew um and i know it is violent and there is gore to it but like in large it's a lot it's implied gore a lot of the time it you is. know it's it's not super it's not we're not like you know stranger things are like people's faces are coming off you know it's like <laughs> yeah. i don't I, you know it, it i i don't think it was as violent as as it, as it could have been that's for sure but right. you know i think it i think it was um so you know it's a process it's all like here's the bad here's the ugly version here's the not so ugly version here's the implied version sure. you know and all of them have their own value um, it just depends on what they were trying to do. So what was the conversation there? Like, why did it, the version we see kind of went out in the end? You know, basically it, it was just like hard to, I just don't think, I don't think Alan responds to the super violent stuff. Okay. And so he kind of, he kind of constantly dialed it back. You know, he would give me the note and stuff like that. And I would, I would take a little bit off and a little bit off and stuff like that yeah. because the guy shot it. You know, and and so you, you want to like give the director a good look at what everything he has. A lot of the time, that's that's kind of part of the process is just showing everything we have, and then and then taking either some of it off or you know all of it off. And right, you know, we just kind of constantly chipped away at it to where it's you know because there's a little kid there too. Sure. So it's like you know you don't want it to be super graphic, and I and I know that even before that, even what was shot there there was a, a, they were doing like rehearsals with like his gut being, him being totally gutted. Right. And like he, he shut that down and, and uh, you know, I think pulled that back a bit as well. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, uh, as, as again, as a, as a viewer, uh, I, I don't think it probably needed it or anything because I mean, the show works so well in more of a, a dense philosophical text than it does leaning into the the violent natures of these things. And it works more, again, it, it's it's on a dreamscape level. So, I mean, you know, he is the stuff of nightmares, but it doesn't really lean in heavy on the particularly, like you said, violent or gory version of these things. And and even as you were saying about the, the demon coming out, it's effective, but it doesn't need to be the end all be all to be show off the impressiveness of the demon versus what needs to serve in the story at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and you know, that's, I, again, I, I don't know how the conversations went on like in, cause you know, the, the diner scene is pretty violent. Um, 
um, and pretty gory. But, you know, I mean, I think that was expected um, because that was fairly true to text and um, true to the, you know, the, the source material. So, yeah. Which um, I, I understand. I mean, uh, this show, even though they made changes to some of some of the characterizations uh, of people like the Corinthian, for instance, doesn't come in, I believe, until much later in the comics than this show and is kind of like pitched as the big bad uh, more often than not in this show versus yes. how it was. And obviously they they changed around uh, Constantine or Constant yeah. like us Americans are yeah. like, it's Constantine, isn't it? And then having to like rearrange our brains is always fun. But um just obviously going with the Joanna version versus John Constantine and and But she was so amazing like um, unbelievable man, i have no issue she, with any of the recasting by the way like any of that stuff i think it's a, a gross conversation online that i'm glad neil gaiman himself kind of like put people but, in their but, place yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like what like seeing her why i like i know like i think they're they could do a spinoff do you know what i mean like they, they, they could and it. It, yeah and they could and i think it would succeed because she's so amazing like She's so like she, I, whatever that she's like Indiana Jones. Do you know what I mean? Mm, she yeah. has that sort of charisma that, 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 that like look in her eyes, you know, when she just turns around and looks at dream, it feels so magnetic. And, you know, yeah. that's what, that was really a, a special thing as well to, to, to get that kind of footage. Her, I mean, her, David Thewlis, like I cut, you know, you know, so he's John D and yeah. that, and like, that was another big one, like him breaking out of prison. A lot of, a lot of iterations of that, that were really beautiful. And, um, and th- I mean, it is beautiful. Like he, to, I, you know, he's one of the best actors that have ever lived, you know, yeah. I would, you know, and so like to get, to be able to edit footage of him was, uh, you know, a treat as well. I think he's really talented and, um, man, the shit was just so cool to see, you know, to see that spectacle on screen and stuff like that. Yeah. So. I, 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 I was impressed and I'm very happy for you, man. And it's cause it's such an incredible feat and such a great thing to have on your resume, of course, to, and, and to work with such amazing people. So I, I'm, I'm very happy for you with that for sure. Um, any you. other things like, cause right now I feel like we're at an inflection point with the show, um, where, it's it was number one, you know. It was it's it's doing quote well. Uh, some of the other metrics are like, but is it doing well enough to where uh, it's going to go for season two? That's why I'm glad we're doing this episode. I'm glad I'm talking to you. I'm glad to see other people putting stuff out. I listened to a very good uh, interview on the Watch podcast with Alan Heinberg and. I wish so much that this show carries on. So that's why I'm kind of like here with you. And I'm sure obviously you feel the same. Um, So what would you say to people who maybe haven't seen the show or, you know, kind of, you know, maybe trying to dip their toe in now, what's the pitch for a show like this? That is so hard to market. People called this unadaptable. I now can tell you, you know, as a person who's seen it, that's not the case. And I think they got the exact right tone and pitch of this show what would you say to people if you if you've had to tell people and i've seen you try to market the show online on on socials and everything just be like watch this show what do you think is the angle what do you think people should grip onto to watch this show i mean you know the pitch to me would be if you love adventure 
and love and comedy and laughing and you know just lean story like really like good storytelling then then this is a show for you i mean yeah there's magic involved and there's demons and stuff but man it just has such a you know that's what i really love about alan's writing he's so there is comedy in what he does and there is love in the characters and people are you know everything that they're doing is be you know ideally for a better for a good cause or you know everyone has their own their own their own goals and it, it's the kind of stuff that just makes for good storytelling good movies good tv and um yeah that's it i mean if you just like good storytelling and good te- television this is this is where you should be yeah i mean I, look i hope it i hope it comes <laughs> back too man but, yeah. <laughs> for sure i i, I never know for everybody <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I've kind of said to a lot of people, it, it's so it's so hard to to say to people like that a show that has to deal with the personification of people versus like actually dealing with real people in a lot of instances or uh, a lot of like the magic realm or any of these things. I'm like, it could be hard to convey, but it also to me, I think is just so simple that this show is just the most human show I've seen in a long time uh, and you're just learning it through the lens of a God. So why not? You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting prism to look through, but I think it's such a mirror up to a lot of lessons that we can learn every day. And I, I think that's what I appreciate about the comic way back when. And now uh, as an adult and seeing this version of it, I'm, I'm, I know people who have cried watching this show. I've know people like have, you know, laughed their head off. So you're right. It sets all the right tones and such impressive casting. Uh, I'm glad you were a part of it, man. That that's that's great for for you, man. Any other takeaways for that before we wrap up? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, just watch the show. I mean, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. And uh, I will say this, you know, I've talked a little bit to Alan about just kind of like future storylines, and it's all stuff that I think everyone would want to see. So I'll tell you that much. Like yeah. it's all great storylines of the comic. Like even in 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 this one, you know, where he goes back in time and he and you know he makes the friend who like, you know, that story and and you know they come back every hundred years and meet at the bar and stuff I like love that. that. Episode, yeah. Man, it's just talk about a human episode. You yeah. know, where you're really getting into the human condition and and. uh and just what it is to have a friend, you know what I mean? It's yeah. so, it's so simple and it's so beautiful. And, and I think, you know, that's Ben Kingsley's son who plays that. Is uh, it really? Plays that yeah. And he's I didn't just, know that. Abs- he's an absolute amazing, you know, just, just, a, you know, fantastic actor. He's so present. So, you know, v- gorgeous on screen, just in all the right ways. And, you know, that show, I think, I mean, all that, I love it all, man. I, I could gush on and on about all the things I love, you know, because there's not a lot to dislike. Yeah, for sure. And and that episode in particular, I think, is uh, is one of those great, like, just a positive a question that you would ask yourself for, like, you know, if I can live forever and I had that choice, would I do it? And what would I learn? And, you know, what would I expect? And, you know, would I ask for death? Like, those type of things are all just amazing. You could chew on that forever. And for them to hone that in, and put it within the context of this this character is just impressive. So I, I loved every minute of it. Um, excellent job, man. I, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, and you know, you got some 
some things you're still working on and, and obviously not just sitting around waiting for uh, next season of Sandman. So uh, what do you got going on? Anything to kind of put out there for people or? Uh, so uh, we just finished shooting uh, seasons two and three of Firefly Lane. So those will be, you know, those are in the works and those will be in post-production for a while and be coming, you know, coming to Netflix soon. I know that. Um, and then I'm, I did, uh, I'm on a show called the game. Uh, it's a reboot from the original series that was on, uh, BET and, uh, yeah, I did season one and I'm doing season two as well. And, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, I mean, there's a lot of great, great content out right now. And, uh, you know, I hope to, I hope you guys check it out. I appreciate your time, man. And best of luck with everything in the future and crossing the fingers for, for season two of Sandman. From your lips to God's ears. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks to Jamin Bricker once again for coming on the show. Everybody go check out The Sandman on Netflix right now. Check us out next week when we're covering Bodies, Bodies, Bodies and probably doing some summer recap stuff. We'll see you next week on Recent Activities.